When you think of the civil rights movement, you probably think of Martin Luther King, the back of the bus, or maybe even the KKK. Over time, the battle for civil rights in America has been simplified, tweaked, even fabricated. So in this episode, we take a closer look at a struggle which has torn apart, reshaped, and defined the United States of America as we ask, what do we get wrong about the civil rights movement? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. From the faculty this week is Dr. Nicholas Grant, a historian of 20th century United States and author of Winning Our Freedoms Together, African Americans and Apartheid 1945 to 1960. We'll pop a link to that in the show notes as well. His research focuses on race, internationalism and transnational activism. Hello, Nick. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Great to have you here. And uh, we're also joined today by an award-winning author, broadcaster, and professor of sociology at the University of Manchester. His books include The Speech, the story behind Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, and he's one of the most highly regarded voices on global civil rights. It's a huge honour to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Gary Young. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. And you know what? I'm going to dive straight in. Uh, because I don't want to waste any time with you on the podcast. It feels like the, the term of, of, of civil rights is something that tends to get a bit isolated as, as in the past. And it also feels like we're at a point now where we have equality, we have equal rights. So is civil rights not done? Are we, isn't it just happy days now? Um, <clears throat> well, if you uh, if you look at the Black Lives Matter, the demonstrations, the you know George Floyd, the the uh, the inequalities, then certainly to the extent that civil rights was about equality, uh, we are not done, you know, by any metric. If one's understanding of civil rights uh, was reduced to the law and the kind of codified application of the law as it should apply to one group as opposed to another, one could broadly say that that is done. Uh, but if you look at how laws are applied, as opposed to what they literally say, if you look at who tends to fall foul, not just of the law of the land, but the law of probabilities, more likely to be stopped or searched or hung or um, uh, executed or so on, then in a range of ways we can we you know we can very safely say that there is a long way to go so nick i'm going to i'm going to come to you because when we think of civil rights and perhaps very ignorantly we think of martin luther king we think of malcolm x you know there's these these key figures I, i'm sure there's more to civil rights than just these two so i wonder if you could give us a bit of historical context and some some of the key figures across the movement yeah, and I think when I talk to students who maybe learn a little bit about civil rights at school, it's still very much taught through the lens of MLK. Malcolm X are often taught as being diametrically opposed to one another, which we might get into a little bit later as being maybe not the, the full story. But I think if we're talking about the, the classical phase of the civil rights movement of the 1950s, of the 1960s, 
I think the really important thing here is that it's less about key leaders uh, and more about a real moment of mass participation and mass direct action, which there has been instances of before, but really the 50s and 60s is when that explodes in America. So you've got to look at groups like, well, you've got to look at the student sit-in movement of the early 1960s, groups like SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Congress for Racial Equality or CORE and um, their involvement later with things like the, the Freedom Rides or the Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964. And like other really interesting leaders like Stokely Carmichael, James Farmer, or figures like Fanny Lou Hamer, um, who is a key figure in Mississippi, pushing for voter registration, working with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to change or to challenge the white primary uh, in terms of democratic politics in the South and, and nationally as well. So there's this whole host of figures, really, um, that we don't talk about all the time and that maybe we need to recenter alongside those more famous figures too. But I think my point is, is that we need this broader cast of characters and we really need to remember that the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s was, was about ordinary people, or extraordinary people actually in lots of ways, getting out, desegregating facilities, pushing for their rights as citizens and pushing for their rights to vote their right to vote as well and to doing that on a mass level, often really young and, and not figures that we that we often remember today. The, the movement, I think, is the most important thing. I, I think just to, um, to back up what Nick said there, one of the things that was intriguing to me when I wrote about uh, the speech, about Martin Luther King's most famous speech, in which he said, I have a dream, was the degree to which that march only took place because of mass action. That kind of without the, the at the beginning of that year, Martin Luther King and the other leaders of the civil rights movement didn't want to have a march. It was only one guy, A. Philip Randolph, and his um, kind of deputy Bayard Rustin wanted to have a march, and all the others had these other plans. And they didn't really want to. And what happened that year was that there was this surge of activism that really kind of crystallized in Birmingham, Alabama, around kind of Easter time. And after that, it became impossible for them not to have a march, that they had to do something to contain, to kind of direct this energy. And at the story of that year, as in other years, I mean, Martin Luther King is only really known because of, uh, or only really comes to the fore with the Montgomery bus boycott, which is often reduced to Rosa Parks sitting down on the bus. And people forget the 13 months of mass action where people uh, refuse to ride the buses. But that there, there is a moment at the march, which is very symbolic, where the the leaders of the march, the so-called leaders of the march, go to talk to Congress, to people in Congress. And while they're talking to people in Congress, the march just sets off and that they are left kind of chasing the march to get to the to get to the head of it. And in a way, that is the kind of story of that year and so many other years is of the, the kind of the, the people moving and the uh, national, certainly nationally, the leaders kind of running to catch up. And a film like Selma really springs to mind here in, in terms of the, the popularization of, of civil rights and how it isn't about one person, it is a collective effort. And, and there's thousands of stories to tell. There's thousands of people, like, like you said, Nick, you know, it's a mass exercise. So why is it, Gary, that you, that you think that Martin Luther King has become sort of the poster boy because even in a film like Selma, they had to get Martin Luther King in there, and it's almost like it's not a civil rights movement thing unless he's there. 
So I think there are a few reasons. I think that, uh, first of all, there is a desire in the kind of, you know, in Western culture to reduce things to one person, for it to be the will of an individual. Uh, so if it wasn't him, it would be, you know, it would be someone else. I think that historically, and this is a distortion, I think, he's become benighted. So he has become the kind of the guy we can all do business with, the kind of, you know, the uh, the good leader asking for the decent things. It helps that he embraced nonviolence. But of course, and we may come on to this, but he wasn't beloved at the time at all. Actually, most white people, you know, thought he was an absolute menace, particularly when he spoke out against the Vietnam War. But even before then, he was. Um, he was a great orator. I think there is a a place for understanding black people, even when one might think they're mistaken as a kind of being melodious, kind of um, uh, a melodious capacity to kind of um, speak in kind of, you know, floral tones. So there are a range of ways. If you're going to reduce it to an individual, who else are you going to choose? Who else could you choose? He died too young to be able then to kind of Introduce that understanding, as I'm sure he would have done, as as actually he was by speaking out against uh, the Vietnam War, speaking about economic oppression and so on. So that's the other thing. I think that the fact that he was murdered at such a young age allows a narrative to form in which he is left untarnished. Uh, so those would be the main reasons, I would think. And and you see that with a lot of of great historical figures is that uh, an early death tends to martyr them but we, we've spoken a, a lot about the men of the civil rights movement who were the the notable women behind the civil rights movement i can i come in well a lot a lot to <laughs> probably too many to list and it seems like a bit of a shame to just just list people and not delve into them but you think about well, i mentioned fanny lou hamer before the civil rights lawyer Pauline Murray, who was instrumental instrumental as a Howard University law student at, at crafting the uh, 1954 Brown versus Board of Education uh, decision, figures like Diane Nash, who came up in the um, student sit-in movement and became a key member of SNCC and then King Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or like a, quite a controversial figure like Gloria Richardson, who, who doesn't really fit into the narrative of the civil rights movement being in the South, who's in Cambridge in Maryland, who um, runs an organization called the Cambridge Nonviolent Action Committee and thinks about working to challenge desegregation and a range of other things um, there as well. So that's just a, a list of people that spring to mind, mainly because I did a lecture on the classical civil rights movement three weeks ago and they were in it. But I think like the figure that I always think needs to come to the fore, and I would like to see taught alongside some of these more famous men, particularly in schools, and I'm talking mainly from a UK perspective here, is Ella Baker. There's a really fantastic biography of Ella Baker by the African-American historian, um, Barbara Ransbury. And Baker is active way before the 50s and 60s. She's a member of the NAACP in uh, the early 20th century. She writes a great piece uh, during the Great Depression with Marvel Cook about the dangers of racism and capitalism in the Depression era. In the 40s, she's traveling throughout the South trying to register people to join the NAACP. Um, and to think about registering, to try and register to vote really early on in the 1940s. 
in the 50s, she's a member of uh, King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but she falls out with King. And then when she hears about the sit-in, student sit-in movement, she goes and helps found the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and becomes a, a key strategist and organizer for them. And she has this really interesting view of what leadership is if we're going to think about decentering certain leaders it's like she believes that leadership has to come from the grassroots it has to come from indigenous communities and it's all about empowering the individual at a level to lead themselves um and i think that's a really important message to go back to to gary's point right at the start about like this is far from done right and to think about the black lives matter movement if you're thinking about how do you push for racial justice today? How do you continue some of the struggles associated with the black freedom struggle to do that on a global scale? Thinking of someone like Ella Baker and how she talked about leadership and how she talked about making people capable and, and empowering people to push for change in their communities and at a larger level. I think that's a really inspiring message. So I'd say someone like Ella Baker needs to be recentered in, in popular narratives. There's lots of history about her, there's lots of really great scholarship on her, but I still think, I ask my students if they've ever heard of her and, and very few put their hands up, which I think is quite telling. I, w- I would just add one character, and there, I, I agree with Nick, there is something invidious about trying to kind of name, you know, it's kind of Mitt Romney's binders full of women <laughs> kind of, but there is one character, particularly in my in my journalism career, because it's a piece that I'm most proud of, which is Claudette Colvin. And I mention her because she is, I mean, it speaks to many of the things that we're talking about here. She's a 15-year-old in Montgomery. This is before King is even known. I think it's actually before King even comes to Montgomery, uh, who was involved in the NAACP and who was kicked off a bus and who pleads not guilty, which are the two things. Lots of people were kicked off buses. Rosa Parks was kicked off buses loads of times the point is do they prosecute and if they do how do you plead and um claudette i think was the first to plead not guilty and they were running with her but she was dark-skinned she was from the wrong side of town and she felt pregnant and they decided not to go with her and in any decent civil rights book she will be mentioned and in almost every civil rights book that's all she gets is a mention and then she's literally a footnote in history. And she'd become a, a nurse's aide in the Bronx when I found her. And the reason that Claudette's story is important in a way is, is that it is emblematic of a series of things. First of all, the, the ordinary people who made it happen. Secondly, the young people who made it happen. Uh, thirdly, the degree to which the civil rights movement was a strategic movement that even Claudette says, I don't blame them for dropping me because they couldn't have won with me. The point was that they didn't help me and they kind of, they threw me to the dogs in a way. But that the idea that people think of it as just being purely moral and, you know, and um, but it was a deeply strategic movement. But it also speaks to the conservatism in the movement. It was church-led. There were lots of women playing leadership roles, but they rarely had leadership titles, including in Montgomery, where the women, there's a great book called The Women, um, The Montgomery Bus Boycott and The Women Who Started It. The women did most of the work. This is not 
kind of knew, really. But, you know, it was Martin Luther King and the others who fronted it. So in all sorts of ways, I think Claudette's story gives a sense of what is going on in that kind of, uh, what is going on in that moment, some of the fault lines in terms of gender and class. Just to kind of go back, go to your point about the, the March on Washington and the people there leading that and the leaders following, but to talk about gender, and I may have actually read this in your book, so apologies if I'm quoting back the information that you've written about to you, but there, there, no women spoke at the March on Washington, yeah. right? And there was a parade of like notable women and everyone applauded. And I think that that's really telling about that conservatism in terms of the gender politics of, of the civil rights movement. And Paulie Murray is out, speaks out against that kind of thing as well and eventually comes up with this idea of Jane Crow as a way of thinking about the relationship between race and gender oppression, um, which is really interesting. But yeah, I think there is a very much an idea within certain branches of the civil rights movement that women maybe are organisers behind the scenes, but they don't take that active leadership role, which to go back to, to kind of my earlier point about Ella Baker means that maybe we need to rethink who's a leader, what constitutes lead, leadership, and to embrace that idea that Ella Baker puts forward of indigenous leadership um, uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you, you've both touched on there is the fact that there was there was more organisation, there was more strategy around the civil rights movement once it, it reached the 1950s and the 1960s, and perhaps that's why it gained the traction it did and had the impact it did then. But it wasn't isolated to just those couple of decades, was it? You know, civil rights is is, is something that's that's been fought for long before the, the mid-20th century. So, Nick, I wonder if you could talk a bit about more of the background of that and how, you know, the 1900s just sort of took ownership of a term that really belonged to a movement that happened long before. Yeah, so I always start any module that I teach about race in the US or or that will end up teaching, going on and talking about the civil rights movement with Jacqueline Dowd Hall, who's a brilliant historian's um, work on on what she calls the long civil rights movement. And in her periodization, she says, yes, the 40s and 50s were distinct in certain ways. But if you want to think about where that comes from, you've got to look way back to the 1930s and particularly labor organizing Black socialism, black communism uh, in the era of the Great Depression, uh, in terms of mobilizing people during the Great Migration of people moving from the south to the north to work in industrial cities, to work in industry, and then think about how that developed during the Second World War and the call for a fight against fascism overseas and the fight for Jim Crow at home, and how all of that feeds into the 50s and 60s and that more classical phase, she calls it, of the civil rights movement. But I think you can even, I mean, maybe pushing things a little bit here and there's distinct differences in terms of moments and decades and things like that. But you can think of like the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, who have this legal strategy to push for civil rights. They're doing that in the 1910s. They're pushing for voter rights. They're pushing against in the courts against segregation in the 1910s. In the 1930s, they're in the courts trying to get a federal bill passed that would outlaw lynching, uh, for example. Or you could look at like movements associated at the same time, like Marcus Garvey's UNIA, Black Nationalist Pan-Africanist movements, which you could maybe argue is a precursor to Black nationalism of the 60s and the Black Power movement. So yeah, there's, there's a whole much longer tradition of Black organising, and that is that goes way, way back, right, even before those moments that I'm talking about. 
And I think in lots of ways, you can see the 40s and 50s as a culmination of that. It's certainly something that owes a lot to that long tradition as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned the lynching and, and the civil rights movement is solving issues that, that are as severe as, as you say, lynching. But when you go further back, it's bondage, it's slavery, it's that that basic systemic inequality where black men and women were not seen as equal to white men and women. So, Gary, I'm going to I'm going to sort of ask you here. It feels like the terminology civil rights is it, it feels very political it feels very bland and a, and a way of sort of an acceptable way for us to sort of to, as a sort of coping mechanism to deal with something that really is a lot more brutal than the terminology civil rights would suggest i mean civil rights it, it speaks to in in a way that it's generally used speaks to a particular phrase in a broader trajectory and the broader trajectory is a fight for equality which, to go back to your first question, that fight's not over. So the fight for equal rights and codified law, if we were going to reduce civil rights to kind of that specific thing, then one can understand it as being part of a narrative. But the, the benefit of talking about it in terms of civil rights, I think, is that it can also be connected to other ways in which other people are oppressed that um, while the context of African-Americans is, of course, unique, because most political contexts are, they all are, if we look at the only slightly broader strokes, then we can see some, you know, some connections with uh, not just in America, not just with other groups. Like, you know, women didn't have full civil rights in a range of ways, and um, or Native Americans or whatever, then it broadens it. And it makes it more possible for more people to kind of understand themselves in this context. So I think, uh, and even in that moment, even in the, the moment of just talking about just civil rights, there is significant brutality during that time in the, in the 50s and 60s, the, you know, the still unsolved murders and tortures and, um, you know, Emmett Till and... Uh, and um, and so on. But, and here I would go to kind of even the Holocaust as a word. No one word is going to do justice to the horrors of that particular form of, of systemic discrimination. And so it's, <laughs> it makes more sense to me to choose a word that we can use and that is broadly applicable than to use one that would be na narrowly defined. The fight for civil rights wasn't the same as the fight for abolition. And it's not the same as the fight that's going on now. But what connects them all is the fight for full equality. And that is the kind of broad, is, is, the, is the broad arc. But there have been stages in that fight. And this was a stage in that fight. Mm. And we've spoken before on the podcast, I, I chatted to Rebecca Fraser a few episodes ago about slavery and the build-up to the civil war um, and as you said gary you know abolition is very different to to the more modern civil rights movement but one of the things that come out of my discussion with rebecca is that this sort of north south divide that we tend to see as as inherently racist you know in that the south wanted slavery the north didn't it was actually forged out of industrial and economic needs and then over time people that were actively supporting slavery 
went to the south and those that didn't went to the north. So it kind of created that racial divide. So when it comes to civil rights, which is a predominantly race-related issue and certainly is, is seen as that, why do we still see this as a problem for the American South? So I think there's lots of things going on there. I think because it's a comfortable narrative, and I think it's a narrative that does... Well, it's not a comfortable narrative, that's probably the wrong word, but it's a narrative that means that American politicians at the time and subsequently can say that, well, racism was predominantly limited to the American South. We passed you know, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We dealt with those pesky backward Southerners and we, reflect, we perfected once again American liberal democracy and everything was fine, right? Which we all know is, is not true and, and isn't what happened, but it's a comfortable myth and it's a comfortable narrative to, to talk about exceptionist ideas of what America is and, and American democracy. And I think it's really important to note that like, the first Jim Crow laws, as as they were, actually were passed in the North in, like the eighty uh, in the in the nineteenth century, early nineteenth century, eighteenth century, late eighteenth century, and these legal codes were passed, and segregation was a real thing in the North. Um, so there are historians like Jean Theo Harris and Kamosi Woodard and Brian Purnell who talk about a Jim Crow North being a, a real thing, and there's a, often a distinction to say, well, maybe yes, racism existed in the North, but it was it wasn't legal, it wasn't de jure, it was de facto. But actually it was kind of legally enforced as well in lots of ways. You only have to look at housing segregation during the New Deal to think about how um, redlining and covenants that were attached to the right to buy houses would literally exclude certain racial groups from certain areas as well. And what I try and use often when I want to talk about that to illustrate that is really quite famous case at the time in 1957 in, in Levittown on the outskirts of, of Philadelphia, where you have this white suburb of about 60,000 people. And you have an African-American family, William and Daisy Myers, who, who try and move in and then they buy a house there. And they're met by a mob of about 400 plus whites who, who want them out to burn a, a cross on the, you know, in, the, in the garden of their next door neighbors who are deemed to be seeing, being too friendly towards them, who throw bricks through the window and eventually state troopers come in and they have to try and quell the unrest, right? And what's really striking, that's in 1957, is that you get state troopers coming in, you get a, a black family trying to essentially desegregate a white community in on the outskirts of Philadelphia. And that's just two weeks before the Little Rock crisis in Arkansas which has global resonance and international headlines where you have nine African-American school children trying to desegregate Little Rock Central High School. And we teach that and we learn about that quite a lot as being, you know, this is a moment of extreme racial violence and intimidation in the South against children. And that's certainly true. But what does that mean if, if we forget what happened in Levittown too? So the South and the North are, are different in certain ways. Segregation works in different ways, but we've got to be careful not to give a sense that the North is some racially enlightened space or is in any way better than the South. It's about implicating the nation and white supremacy as it works within the American nation and not just seeing it as a, as a Southern problem. I would add that um, one of the reasons that we think about it as, as a Southern problem is because the North won. Mm. <laughs> and so they got to kind of write the history of that uh, of that moment. Yeah. And um, if we look at uh, Harlem Renaissance 
or you know a lot of the kind of cultural expressions that come out primarily of the north i mean a lot of those practitioners came from the south during the great migration but it's not like they land in the north and think well you know we've we've arrived and uh, and freedom is here and one of one of the phrases i used to hear when traveling through the south was that in the past in the south it didn't matter how close you got just how big whereas in the north it didn't matter how big you got just how close the uh, uh, which is kind of in a way true enough and the point being that in the north there was african-american wealth you just kind of had to keep it segregated in that area there was during the 20s there was an african if you watch um passing for example um, like there was an african-american moneyed class in the in the north and you couldn't do that in the south but that also forces another kind of challenge about understanding the south which is uh when i was traveling through the deep south writing my first book i was kind of constantly challenged by african americans who would say yeah you know you know what segregate there were some things about segregation that we miss we had our schools and we had our valedictorians that building over there that's wrecked cab calloway played at that building because he couldn't play somewhere else. And I kind of, I struggled to understand what on earth this would mean. And then I spoke to a man called Charles Payne, who is also, uh, he's an uh, esteemed African-American historian. He also happens to be related to my wife. And I said, how do we understand this? And he said, well, the South wasn't segregated. It wasn't literally segregated. It was like black women breastfed white children they cooked food they you know most memoirs of white southerners they've got a black friend until you know uh, when they're very little until their parents say right you can't play with Maisie anymore quite often with slave owners the slave would live in the house not all slave owners were like super rich and of course white men slept with uh, black women often forcibly but not always so it wasn't that it was the basis on which you could integrate, which was the problem. Whereas the North actually was pretty segregated. The North was much more segregated than the South. And so um, he said, you know, that integration and segregation was the way in which a certain set of interests within the white community framed what was going on. But for black people, it was always about white supremacy. Who runs things? Who can tell me where to go? Who cannot tell me where to go? And that was framed as integration and segregation. But actually, kind of, th that's not that's not literally. Even though African Americans did adopt those terms, that's um, not literally what they were fighting for. Yeah, and and obviously, you know, in the last um, two hundred years or nearly two hundred and fifty years of, of U.S. history things have come a long way, not simply because, you know, slavery is no longer legal. And, uh, the civil rights movement furthered that cause a lot more. And, and over time, you know, we are seeing gradually that, that those issues that we're fighting for, we're starting to see that, that, that change. But there are still things today, you know, as you mentioned, this is a fight that's still ongoing. You know, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, these, these things are still huge, huge issues. And also worldwide, you look closer to home here, you've got you know, the the Rwanda law, for instance, in, in the UK, you know, that's that's a racially motivated sort of law. So 
I guess to end this episode, I'm, I'm curious to know where, where you think it goes from here. Well, I mean, my personal, my personal view is that, uh, well, is, is, uh, is primarily that these things, if they're won, they can be lost. And in a range of ways, we are seeing a lot of those achievements be rolled back uh, in, in uh, certainly in America, uh, around voting laws, around kind of low local jurisdiction and I you know of um, of voting and things like that that kind of the 65 voting rights act is kind of effectively being guided by the Supreme Court and that in a, in a range of ways the achievements of the civil rights movement which is not that long ago you know my father-in-law who's african-american, grew up under segregation. You know, my kids are learning it in school. And I say to them, well, you can ask your granddad. He, he grew up under that. I mean, it's within living memory. It's one of America's kind of great uh, achievements is to kind of, you know, move on. I was, you know, that's old stuff. And um, uh, so it's very recent. And it was never accepted by a large number of, uh, it was never accepted by a large number of people. And so they're looking to, uh, roll it back, and actually they've been quite effective in in rolling it back. The one other thing I would say, and this speaks back to the civil rights movement, but actually cut in, in the 60s, but chimes with now, and I think, Nick, I haven't read your book, but I think maybe connects with some of the themes in your book, even if the timing's a bit different. During the 60s in particular, and the 50s, Black America, what Black America was going through chimed with what the rest of the Black world was going through in or in terms of their fight for full citizenship. And one of the reasons it was effective when it was was because America was running around the world lecturing the world on democracy at a time when new states were being formed in Africa out of colonialism. And Black people, the majority of Black people around the world were all fighting for the vote. So there was a connection there. Now, at a certain point, Black America and, and the rest of the kind of Black diaspora kind of diverged in terms of their needs and wants, but actually they're coming back together at a time when fascism is a mainstream ideology in Europe and you're seeing the armed insurrectionists uh, threaten democracy in America, that most European countries have a Trump of some sort and they're doing quite well, uh, which is why I think Black Lives Matter could pollinate in a way that it did, primarily around the rest of the Western world. So I think we're in a in a moment where there is a concerted attempt within the power structures uh, transatlantically to roll back the the victories that took place in America in the sixties and to suppress uh, forms of equality in. Um, in Europe, so I think we're in uh, the the future is going to be one of, of protracted struggle. You know, is it? I can't remember who it was who said the past is never past. It was a southern Faulkner, I think, who said the past isn't gone; it's not even past. Um, but we're still in it. We're still fighting. That 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 fight isn't over. Yeah, I, I think what Gary's saying is so important. I think that idea that we can learn from this history of the civil rights movement, that the, the actors involved with the civil rights movement that we all know didn't just kind of dust their hands off and go like, well, we've done it now. In the 60s, they realised that civil rights, legal rights, citizenship was one part of a much bigger story. And if you look at like 
King's speeches and his challenges to America, particularly in the latter stage of his career before he's assassinated in 1968, those things that he's talking about in terms of race, capitalism, in terms of like thinking about decolonization around the world, those things are still incredibly relevant. Or if you think about the Black Power moment and read about the Black Panther's 10-point plan, a lot of that stuff about police brutality and the abolition of the criminal justice system, all of that stuff is incredibly relevant now. So I think there is a, is a way to think about this history um, as a presentist history, not in a way that the right would say is a distortion of history, but it's actually accurate because you can learn from this history and think about some of the problems that we face as, as a society globally when it comes to race and racial in, injustice. And just on, on Gary's point, I think the thing that was most in, well, there's lots of things that were really inspiring about the re-emergence of Black Lives Matter in 2020, but that fundamentally global nature of that movement is part of a much longer history of, of Black international politics that comes out of the US or comes out from the Caribbean or, or from Africa itself, and where people are not saying, oh, well, we're facing the same problems as you. They're saying we're facing similar problems, but also that recognition that the white supremacy the systems that support it historically and now are global systems, so they need to be responded to globally as well. And I don't know, like I, I don't know what the next stage is, and it, it does seem like people maybe are starting to forget about twenty twenty as well. But um, but I think when I, when you talk to people in activist groups, when you talk to younger people as well, there's a lot. Of, that was a really transformative moment for them, seeing that a few years ago and thinking about. Britain, for example, not just as British politics and systemic racism in Britain, and not just saying that race is something that fundamentally happens in the US, which I think our politicians would like us to believe, and something that Gary wrote really eloquently about in The Guardian recently in the Cotton Capital series about Britain's willingness to kind of forget its history of, of racism, slavery, of um, racial violence, and all of these kinds of things as well. Um, we're not meant to think about that. So the connections between the black freedom struggle in the US, the civil rights movement in the US, and how people are responding to that historically in the UK and in other places around the world are really important to recover too. This episode of America, a history podcast, was produced, hosted, and edited by me, Liam Heffernan. A huge thanks to both Nick Grant and Gary Young for their involvement in this episode. And if you are interested in learning more, please see the resources and links that we've added to the show notes. And if you like this podcast, please remember to go and leave a rating or a review on Apple or wherever you're listening to the show. On the next episode, we look at one of the most divisive issues in American history, as we ask, why are guns still legal?